The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And joining us today is a comic book writer who has worked for Marvel, DC, and numerous other publishers, including a certain comic called, yes, Escape from New York from Boom Studios. Please welcome Christopher Sabella. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us, Christopher. This is great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Christopher's joining us here for Minute 91. Uh, it starts off with the last few seconds of the president finishing off reciting the New York, New York lyrics that the Duke had made him learn earlier in the movie. And it ends with Snake's deathly implants being nullified. So uh, you got uh, your minute here, Christopher, at a very beginning uh, with a very plum, the ending of a very plum shot here. Uh, that's probably one of the standout moments of this entire movie with the president finishing blowing away the Duke. And uh, he's just, um, he's been a man slowly losing his sanity over the course of this movie, I guess you could say. And here he just, he completely finally snaps for good. Yeah, I, I, I feel lucky I got this minute because uh, this is a really good minute. Um, but yeah, that was, that was like, uh, I don't know. That was a part I really loved was uh, Donald Pleasance just going ape at the end. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, he's just been through so much and like. They put a wig on him at one point, right? Yes. Like, yep. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, just like watching him just like lose it uh, is, uh, yeah, no, you rarely get to see him like sort of uh, him as an actor uh, go off like that and sort of like be sort of big and wacky. Yeah, yeah. He's He's been pretty emotionless, his character in this movie. And a lot of his movies, he, he, the characters he plays are very stoic people. And you're right. It's, it's. Very rare to see him get to cut loose like this. That's true. Yeah, and you know he's 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 chuckling. He's enjoying it. You know the the, the president Molly here. He, he's having fun blowing the Duke away. Yeah, I think that this is a very satisfying. This is what they call an emotional corrective experience, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and poor Snake. I, I I feel like this this whole minute's just a monument to dickitude in so many ways. That this poor guy is just. You know, just gotten the crap beat out of him, and he's just really—he's just—he's just trying to make it at this point, and he's been stopped and just trying to make it up over the wall. And so, thankfully, you know, we we get a little pause moment of of crazy from the president, and then he kind of comes through his senses and and flips the crane switch, and you know, as much as a, a man can do with a wounded leg and kind of, he has like a, like a macho man, Randy Savage look a little bit here to me with like the pants and the, I mean, I understand that it's, um, you know, to, to take care of the wound. So you've got this kind of like edge of that piece of fabric that's kind of flopping in the wind a bit, but I was like, Oh, you're kind of macho man coming up the wall here. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he finally makes it up over the wall. So yay. Huzzah. The man has actually escaped from New York prison. Yeah, he did it. They said he couldn't do it. Yeah. They said, they said no, they said the, simple, the, the very beginning of the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis's narration, the, the rules are simple. Once you go in, you do not come out. And yeah. I, I've always, I always loved as a kid, um, 
when Snake just, he doesn't have time anymore. He's got to just jump the rest of the wall. And I always thought it, it was hysterical when I was a kid watching this, the soldier that falls down. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, the guy's trying to help him out. <laughs> he's holding on to the rope. He's helping out. I was like, oh, whoa, oh, whoa. It just feels like there's supposed to be a better way. I mean, I love these couple of minutes, too, because there's just so much inefficiency. And I love, you know, just the shot that right after he makes it up over the wall, there's just this ineptitude where, you know, one, he there's a guy who falls on his ass. And then there's another Jeep that, like, rolls in with a couple of guys who do nothing. <laughs> that literally, for the next two minutes, just stand around and stare. Like, they're there for emotional support, but they haven't, they don't really do anything. But I do like the movement in right around second 22nd, where you have, uh, second 22, sorry, uh, where you have the guys who just stand around and basically eat Danish, who roll in in a Jeep, and then you have the doctor that rolls in. And I think, uh, and I'd give a shout out to Dean Cundy, I, I just, I love the way he composes shots in this movie, that there are these elements of motion coming through and this is just another i think really good example of that yeah absolutely and another and another soldier that i want to point out is the one that snake for no reason shoves out of the way um after <laughs> snake does get down he really doesn't have to shove that i mean you know i guess he's walking as straight a line as possible to get to dr cronenberg but he doesn't have to shove that guy out of the way and it's almost like yeah i might be dead in 30 seconds but if i am i'm gonna get one last shove it on one of these pricks that uh is just i I can't stand these people that's so funny yeah what are they gonna do to him at this point right and he's gonna be like they're gonna shoot him it's like whatever (laughs) yeah wait a few seconds you know uh, so uh, he gets to the doctor, and uh, the doctor wants to jump in and save him, being a medical practitioner. But of course, Hauk, one last time, uh, 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 let's have that. Let's have the tape first, Snake, and he, he shoves the doctor back. And uh, I gotta say, once again, uh, Christopher, this is something we've talked about um, a few times before. That for a man whose life has hours and then minutes and then seconds left. He's, there's been certain things he's done in this movie that you have wasted precious seconds that he really shouldn't. He stares down Hauk about <laughs> five seconds here before handing him the tape. He knows he's got less than a minute left. Just hand him the tape. Yeah, yeah. that's not, I don't know. Uh, I see your point, but uh, but I don't know. One, one last good, like, F you. Um, <laughs> before the final F you of the movie, like... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's him like taking some satisfaction in that. Like I'm giving you, I'm giving you the dummy tape. Like, uh, just knowing that, like, even if he doesn't get zapped clean, uh, at least like he's he's screwed Hauk, uh, and the president. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I just I this poor guy, you know, because you know at this point we're kind of thinking everything's kind of quote unquote on the up and up. So the fact that Hauk pauses here with just so little time left and is like no no you need to produce the tape it's just like really guy really you know i understand that the president's kind of a jackass and he's not really the main mission so to speak but you know i, I again like this we have i think a, a heavy government commentary in the beginning of this movie and i think that this is really the roundup of it these next three minutes of of just the the pure displeasure of this whole thing the fact that there's you know, that they're not inside, right? Like, this isn't taking place, like, a debrief inside. It's outside, and we're going to see in the next minute that, you know, the American flag's out. And But, yeah, Hauk is just an asshole here. 
demanding you know stopping the doctor demanding the tape and and again it just like just shows like the complete corruption of this whole situation that there's just like Hulk is not a a heart-centered guy you know so to speak but just just even you know just to give the the pure you know this was like a pretty tall order so and I understand that you know snake is a a criminal quote-unquote but you know just like give it give a guy a bone here for a second you know yeah and I mean it's almost like, you know, we've talked a lot about how the cassette is more important than the president. When you really start watching this movie minute by minute and analyzing it like this, you realize the cassette actually matters a lot more. They already know the president's been saved. The president's down from the wall. He's okay. How really could have let the doctor neutralize the things before handing the cassette over? You know, I mean, he, he completed the mission. He got the president out. Uh, it's just how being a dick one last time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's some really great, <clears throat> excuse me, micro expressions from Kurt Russell here. Uh, and I, I love there's just this this moment, you know, like when he actually gets zapped. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a second where he he has this really, like, really like scared look on his face and you don't catch a whole lot of it. But then the doctor's like, no, like, we're good. Yep, that's it. Like, I'm going to confirm for you, you're, we don't have to do anything more here. But it's a really excellent, like, you don't see him be fearful at any point in this movie. And this is just that one moment. Where he's like, oh, my God, is that it? Are we good here? You know? Yeah. Christopher, I was going to ask you, I mean, do you find the actual zapping here a bit anticlimactic? Like, it's been the main, like, this huge plot point for the whole movie that these things are going to explode in his neck. And that's what's keeping him from escaping. And, and, and. He's got to get there before Zero to do it. And it's just like, okay, that's it. And that's it. Uh, Yeah, but I don't know. Like, I think that kind of fits with the tone of the movie that, like, I don't know. It's just, to to him, it's the hugest thing in the world. Like, it's the thing that's going to kill him and to everyone else. It's just like, oh, yeah, we just push these paddles against your neck. Like, um, I don't know. I, I think it kind of shows off, like, how, I don't know. Uh, how how sort of throwaway i guess you know they already established that in the opening of like Mm. you know if you want to get euthanized uh instead like let us know um (laughs) so so i think yeah like they've they've worked it out to a process that's so banal that like it's just like oh yeah we just rub these paddles on you and then you're fine but to him it's like you know i'm about to die uh like take it away and it's just like the most like you know, it's like somebody somebody kissing you on your forehead and saying, like, you're cured. Like, uh, <laughs> it's just so, uh, yeah, it, I mean, I, I think the anticlimax is, is sort of built into it and sort of part of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, I like this cool cocaine doctor. Um, <laughs> like, he just looks like, like he's got his sleeves rolled up. Like, he's got his, uh, you know, he's got the sort of V shirt. Uh you could spot the chest hair. Um, I'm just wondering how he got this gig. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he has he has had a much as we've um, gone through minutes where uh, the script is different from the movie. He had a much bigger role in the script. Actually, a, most of his role was completely cut out of this movie. So we really only see him at the beginning and the end here. Mm-hmm. And he's a very he's actually probably the only person that's part of the government that is sympathetic to Snake throughout the movie. And so it's interesting that John Carpenter ended up cutting 
his role out significantly, so you don't really even get that at all. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, he's uh, he's got the stereotypical lab coat. Yeah. <laughs> also, I like uh, like this is like uh, the one time that I noticed like Lee Van Cleef's cool uh, wristwatch, like his studded mm. his studded wristband uh, wristwatch. Like, oh yeah. I was like, that's a pretty badass watch, like, even nowadays. Uh, <laughs> like, that and the earring, like, I don't know. It's a, it's a very, like, not that Lee Van Cleef needs help, like, looking <laughs> the way he looks, but I just thought they were some uh, some nice accoutrements. Yeah, I have to say, there are some really excellent accessory choices for Hauk, you know? I think in general the watch situation here is is amazing. The the bracelets they've they've chosen, the styling around that is great. I love the earring. I think it's amazing. And that's like him as a person. Like he had an earring. Like that's not like they just happen to add it to the Hauk character which I think just totally oh, ups the value. Yeah, like he oh. actually has he had an <laughs> earring in real life. Like that's him as a dude. <laughs> cool. That's even yeah. better. Isn't it? Yeah. I I love that about him cuz he was in the navy and I guess it was like you know, he traveled around and he was like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get me an earring. And it was like, you, you do that. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as I said in the intro, uh, Christopher wrote the escape from New York ongoing comic book that, uh, is set after the movie ends. And, uh, before we get into, uh, the comic book itself, I mean, you talk a bit about, you know, what your history with the movie is and how you came to get that gig writing that comic book. Are you like, a, have you, were you a huge fan for a long time was it just another gig to you something more uh no it was really big to me like i i uh so i i'm just a huge john carpenter fan um like i think i think like he's one of the first directors i ever figured out as a kid that like oh you can follow directors and like if you like one movie by them you might like another movie by them um so he was the first dude who really sort of that clicked with me so so yeah, Escape from New York was just like one of the many movies that uh like once once we got a VCR in our house, uh you know, it was all over. Like I was just like consuming whatever I could. So um so yeah, like and I've I've remained, you know, a Carpenter fan since then and um Boom had announced a Big Trouble in Little China comic and and I told my editors at the time I was doing a creator owned book with them. Uh, and I told them, I was like, if, if you get another John Carpenter thing and you don't let me pitch on it, like I'm never going to write for you again. Um, <laughs> it's the emptiest threat in the world. Cause if they had said like, no, I would have been like, Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but amazingly, like then one day uh, my editor called me uh, and he's like, or he set up a call and he's like, yeah, we want to talk to you about this thing. And called me and he's like so uh do you want to write the escape from new york book and i was like yes like uh, i was I, it was like the easiest decision i ever made i was like mm. yes please like i'm in um and then uh yeah and then they gave me the ground rules which was basically that it you know had to start right at the ending of the film um and we couldn't really touch anything from escape from la but otherwise it was it was all sort of open fair game so so yeah i just started uh i don't know it's sort of like a dream a dream job like you know i got to sit down and think like okay what happens after the movie like what happens to snake and 
and like you know think of it as that like i'm not just writing like fan fiction like i'm writing like the new canon um you know even if it's you know it's not like it was you know carpenter was on board he read my my outline for the first arc and read the first issue like i know he read at least that much and he approved of them so uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing. And, you know, they, they gave me four, four story arcs to do. Um, and then, you know, by the time I got halfway through it, I was like, you know, I'm going to bridge the whole gap of time between New York and LA. Like, I was like, if I can do that and like, then that'll like, it won't just feel successful as like a series of stories, but I'll feel like, okay, cool. I, I like worked out what happens between those two films. Um, so, and, and I, I, with the very last chapter, I basically, I did some trickery where I started bringing in characters from LA, but I gave them like different names. Um, like, uh, because Pam Greer's character had transitioned, right. uh, I, I had used that character's previous identity in the book and was like referring to people by like initials and stuff. And like, um, and like my entire run ends with a uh, snake at, uh, you know, like a, a professional like duel in new Las Vegas. And he basically, uh, like the, the feds show up to arrest him. Um, which is basically, you know, like 20 minutes before escape from LA starts. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, uh, it was everything I hoped it would be. It was, uh, mm-hmm. like a dream job. Well, yeah, that is great. That is great. It was there. Um, so they, with with them not letting you touch any of the characters of the movie, my question is: Is there a challenge writing for such a beloved cult character? You know, Snake. Uh, there's a big following. There are cosplayers of Snake Plissken. There's a million fan websites out there of Snake Plissken. Uh, was it a challenge having to write a character that? had such an established backstory and, and, and such an established following going into it. Yeah. But also like there's not a ton established about snake. Like, you know, Mm. you know, you know, certain things about him, but there's just a lot that, you know, is left up to the viewer's imagination. Um, so that gave me a lot of room to, play around with it but you know i mean i you know snake is snake so like he's just (laughs) very like every time i would write a script i would write it normally and then i would immediately go through and i would cut like half the dialogue i had written for him Mm. um because it was just like well that's not snake like uh so but i also like you know like the book gave me a chance to sort of explore snake outside of like how we know him and not that I like not that at any point he like sits down and has a heart to heart with any character in our run, but like just getting i don't know a bit a couple different facets of him um but i mean i like i'm I love both both the escape movies um and like so I mean there was enough pressure I put on myself to like not screw it up uh that i don't know you know i came in as a fan so like my my main impetus was like don't mess this up because like you know uh, just as a from a fan perspective from a professional perspective of course i don't want like fans uh to get mad at me because i'm doing (laughs) something wrong but but that was like pretty secondary to me because i it, it had to feel right to me i guess 
Um, and if it passed my smell test, I figured hopefully it would pass everyone else's. I can't imagine comic book fans getting angry about the way a beloved character is depicted. That never happened. No, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was kind of curious because we've asked this question of previous guests. Uh, this movie has been genre described as science fiction. And both Eric and I are of the opinion that we, we don't feel it is science fiction. But as somebody who's taken, you know, this story, well, how do you feel? What, how would you describe Escape from New York? Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it sci-fi. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd call it a, th- I don't know, like a thriller. Uh, like, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, especially, you know, we're, we're talking about this movie, like where we're living in the year 2019. So, um, there's some hindsight there, but like, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like sci-fi to me. Uh, you know, there are definitely like sci-fi elements. There are horror elements to it. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, it's a ticking clock thriller movie. It's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, like that movie DOA from the 40s. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you have you have 48 hours to live, like go, um, you know, same thing. It's like you have to watch him, um, you know, get through this maze of horrible stuff and come out at the end with the prize. Like, um, so, yeah, I mean, uh I don't know, uh, especially because it feels like Carpenter really doubled down with Escape from L.A. in terms of like, because that is so much more like that feels like a commentary on like, you know, uh, 80s and 90s action movies. Um, I don't know, like it. I don't even know what my point is with bringing that up, but like, uh, yeah, no, it doesn't. I, I don't I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> it's. He, you know, it's, I think, you know, it's like Carpenter is just like, this is a lot of stuff I'm into. Um, Mm. and I'll put it together in a way that, you know, makes sense to me. So, you know, like I definitely was confused as a kid watching it because I thought, you know, I had already seen like the thing and, uh, the fog. So I was like, cool, uh, New York, like full of monsters or something. And it was just like, oh, this is just like regular people, um, but I mean, there's you know, there's something very horrifying uh, uh, about it. About you know, this this sort of like America's greatest city uh, is now like a walled prison. Like I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it's just the John Carpenter movie at the end. Mm. You know, that's an interesting point that I don't think we've ever discussed, Molly. And uh, big John Carpenter fans, please don't get angry at me. I have not seen all of his movies, so I might be wrong here. But other than the two Escape movies. All of John Carpenter's movies, they all have either like a sci-fi element or a supernatural element or, or something like that. This is really the only one that could be quote unquote real or am I not? Am I, there's something I'm not thinking of. Um, no, I like this is he might have one serious movie he did that like I've blocked out. But uh, otherwise, yeah, it's all yeah. sci-fi and horror driven. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, this one, you know, but at the time, like, you know, it was very you know, sci-fi-ish. I think to us now, like, if it doesn't, not only because, like, our technology is so much different than what they predicted, but also just that, like, you know, we're we're living in an age where it's like, this doesn't feel too far off. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, And not that, like, they're going to wall off New York tomorrow or anything, but, like, the militarization of everything and just, like, 
I, you know, it, it, it feels a lot more appropriate to now. I think when it came out, it was probably a lot more of a shocking vision. Um, and now it's just like, uh, it feels like commentary, but good commentary, like fun commentary. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not that boring kind. Like all this stuff I'm saying. Both. <laughs> not, <laughs> not even, not even. Actually, I was kind of curious about your background because when I was doing a bit of research, it looked like you had a graphic design freelance career for a while and you uh-huh. also have written novels, as I understand it. How did you transition into, so you're really a multi-creative individual, but how did you transition into doing comic book writing? Um, I mean, really, it was... Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's not a very inspirational story, but it was, uh, it was in 2008 when the economy was collapsing and I, like I was running out of clients for graphic design stuff. And I, I just had sort of a come to Jesus moment with myself. And I was like, I'm not good enough to, to do graphic design the rest of my life. Like I've been able to squeak by. Um, and I was like, I know how to write. I can write. I know I can write, uh, but but like getting into the book publishing field is like frightening as hell and involves like, you know, you have to get an agent and like a rep and all that. Uh, but comics was like, no, I've I, you know, at the time I was like, I have friends who write comics who like make their living writing comics. And I was like, I could do that, um, you know, and I, I love reading comics all my life. It was just. Uh, at no point had it occurred to me that like, oh, I could I, like sort of actively pursue this as a thing. Um, so yeah, I, I basically I took half of the money that I had. I moved from Kansas City to Portland, Oregon, and uh, tried to become a comic book writer, and it worked. Um, and I don't know how. Like it's it's the one time like I've that thing of like if you put your mind to it you can achieve anything and I've always been like yeah whatever, uh, but this is the one time I put my mind to it and I achieved it. I actually would say that's quite inspirational to go from Missouri to here and write comics. <laughs> the collapse of the economy seems pretty badass to me. So <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was just more like a like I don't know what to do. Um, like you know, and I had been freelancing long enough that I could. I couldn't picture myself going back to a regular job because I'd, I'd gotten fired from my last job, rightfully. Um, and I, I was just never, I was just a bad fit at jobs. Um, but I, you know, I it wasn't that I was like lazy or shiftless or whatever. Like as soon as I started freelancing, I worked twice as much as I ever did at a day job. But then I got, you know, I got socialized to the point where it's like, I don't know how to work with other people anymore. So, <laughs> so, so I was like, I can't get a real job. So I was like, what's a fake job that I could get? And like, and I, I was like, well, like if everything's collapsing and like, this is my last shot to really try and like make it as a writer, then like, what the hell? Like, I might as well, at least I can tell myself that I tried, even if I flame out and, you know move back to Kansas city with my tail between my legs. I was like, at least, uh, at least I went for it, but yeah, it somehow worked out. So. Yeah, it sure did. Um, everyone, we, we, we have Christopher on the show because, uh, he had a, uh, a booth at New York comic con and I, and I met him there and spoke to him and asked him to come on. Uh, so, uh, let our listeners know what, what are some other projects uh, that you'd like to talk about? 
my uh, my current ongoing book that comes out from Image Comics is called Crowded, um, and it's uh, it's a movie that takes place in the not too distant future, also. Um, but it's uh, a world where there is a Kickstarter for assassinations. It's basically sort of a buddy comedy about a woman who has a million dollar uh, murder Kickstarter on her head and a bodyguard she got from an Uber for bodyguards app. Um, <laughs> so it's a buddy comedy. It's an action book. It's, you know, lightly a commentary on the era in which we live. Um, it's something I'm super, super proud of. So uh, there's like there's one volume in trade now. The second volume will be coming out next year. Um, and then uh, I just wrapped up a book at Vault Comics called Test, um, which was a five-issue sort of super weird sci-fi thing about a, a test market town for the future. Um, I still – I wrote the whole thing. It's like all done, but I still have trouble explaining it to people. Um, so if you're into books like that, that'll be coming out, um, next month. Uh, but yeah, and then I have a heap of other books. So like, if you like one of my books, you might like all the other ones too. Or not. I don't know. Cool. (laughs) I'm very bad at self-promotion. I, I, (laughs) maybe you'll like this. Who knows? Like, here's a thing and I don't know how to describe it. Like, no, it sounds actually really engaging. I, yeah, actually you've, you've got quite a a a huge catalog of material uh and one of the things i was kind of curious about because i know you've written your own original material um, that's not connected to other ip but i was kind of curious as somebody who has carried on legacies of stories and had to incorporate your own particular style and spin like how do you approach that when you're when you're given an assignment or you know you're given something like Suicide Squad that's that's got you know a, an existing story to it. How do you take that material? How do you approach it? And how do you come up with your own sense of of the next step of that story? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, a, a comic book writer I admire once told me he was like, "You have to treat every one of these jobs like it's the only time in the world you'll you're ever going to be able to write this character or these characters." and tell the one story you would want to tell with them. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I couldn't tell you how I came up with half those things. Like, when I was given the jobs, it's just, uh, you know, it's just you you think about your history with these things and sort of what you love most about it. And, you know, you just sort of lean on that and... uh you know, you sort of have a blank check. You can do whatever you want, really, to some degree. So hmm. for me, it was just like, how do I take advantage of that? And like, um, like so for like the Suicide Squad one, like, you know, I was like, well, I want to write a story about Killer Croc on like a an island, on like Monster Island, basically. Because um, I was like, I just want to like a big, monster battle uh with a little tiny monster like sort of (laughs) kicking the shit out of everybody like so you know it's just yeah i don't know um you know there's a lot of pressure because like when you get offered these things and it's like okay we would like something from you you know tomorrow or uh or you know take the weekend we'll take it from you on monday and like still that's a heap of pressure to like Mm. crap i have to like tell a story that that nobody has told about 
you know, some of these characters have been around for, you know, 70 plus years. Yeah, that's um, the part that always blows my mind is, is the how do you tell an original story for people like Superman, Spider-Man that around so it's just it's all been told before. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I think at a certain point you just have to stop worrying about mm. what's been told before, because like even if you're telling a story that's very similar to something another writer and, uh, and creators did decades ago, like you're it's you telling it so like your execution is going to be different and you're going to be thinking about different things while you're telling your story than those creators were thinking about when they told theirs so um so yeah unless like you know uh it's a weird coincidence like you end up telling the exact same story like you could give the same plot to 20 different comics writers and they'd come up with sort of you know 20 different ways to tell that story so i think yeah you just have to stop worrying um about what's been done before and just be like what do i want my thing to be and like Mm. you know what sort of like uh you know because it's like it's it's cool like to be able to be like i'm part of like the history of you know even if it's and for me it's only ever been for like one or two issues but like you know, it's like I'm part of the history of Ghost Rider. Like I wrote, you know, a Ghost Rider thing. Like, and I'm part of the history of Blue Beetle or you know, uh, Captain Marvel. Like, uh, so yeah. I mean, I think mainly I just want to write something that I would be uh, proud to read in mm. you know five years. Like, I don't want to. I, I don't ever want to write something that like I make a face when I think about it. So. Mm. So that's my main goal is like, you know, it's still my name on the book. So it has to be something that I actually, it has to be a story I actually want to tell. Because I feel like you can tell when people are just like collecting a check and going Mm. through the motions. So, yeah. uh, But I've kind of, I've mostly stopped doing work for higher stuff. And I'm just like focusing on my own stuff now. Nice. Um, Which is a lot easier because I invent the canon um i invent the history i invent everything you know me and my my collaborators uh like we build the worlds and nobody can tell us like that we're doing anything wrong i mean they can but it'll be about like, <laughs> equality issues rather than like well this wouldn't happen in, in this world that you invented it's like no it would because i made it up and <laughs> i built a loophole just so i could do this thing eric did you have any other additional questions um no Cool. Uh, Christopher, um, can you tell our listeners where people can find you out in the interwebs? Uh, yeah, I have a website and it's ChristopherSabella.com. Um, but otherwise you can mostly find me on Twitter and it's, uh, at Xtop, X-T-O-P. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. Like really, really appreciate you taking the time and adding your own you know, spin to the series and just giving us some background about how you got where you got. It's really appreciative. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Cool. And you can follow us on Twitter at NY minute pod. Also, we have a Facebook group brains library, the escape from New York minute hangout. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.